0: Yo, turn my headphones up. I need the beat first. Uh,
1: uh, 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 uh. We don't do like a formal introduction, anything like that, as far as uh, you know, our podcast is concerned. We add in like a little bit of a music introduction. We do uh, an intro. Hey, this is Mike Ellis. You know, uh, if you don't know who he is in the dog training world, you're you know just not paying attention to shit. Hey, guys, is Josh Moran? It's Dave Putman. We're back with another episode of Philosophers and Madmen. This week's guest is Michael Ellis. Mike Ellis, great dog trainer, super good at clearly communicating his ideas about dog training. So give the podcast a listen, rate, review,
0: subscribe, or just send us some hate mail. All of it's fine by us. We haven't received any hate mail, so if someone could just send some, that would be pretty fantastic. Uh, if you want to get a hold of Michael Ellis, he is on Facebook, at Michael Ellis School, is on instagram as well as michael underscore ellis underscore school and you can email him at michael ellis school at gmail.com
1: he also has a website michael uh, again if you guys want to get a hold of him all that stuff should be linked in the description of the podcast have a good one thanks for listening much love from what i understand you recently uh, like opened up a new school not as like a second school or anything but you moved locations correct Absolutely. Yeah, so
2: we had been looking for several years for a property before when I opened the school uh, We just uh, opened in a a warehouse in an industrial park and so I leased a a big concrete tilt-up warehouse and uh, we had sort of outgrown it and then we moved about an hour and a half away from there uh, to Sebastopol in West Sonoma County and so we've been hunting since we moved over here personally for a place that had indoor and outdoor space that uh kind of, kind of met our needs and so it was, a, it was the longest process but two years ago we finally found uh the right thing and we bought an old school that's been a school for like 140 years and uh and it had everything we could possibly want it's like three acres it has a big old huge building with indoor space um, plenty of room for us to put in training fields it actually has a modular home on the property. Converted to student housing and stuff like that, so
1: oh awesome,
2: it's fantastic, yeah. It uh, significantly increased our workload, buying <laughs> an old building, but it's been really cool. It's been super cool.
1: That's badass, man. And then you said you moved like an hour and a half away, so I mean, like California driving time—that's like what three, four hours.
2: So luckily, so when we were in the East Bay, it could be, it could be <laughs> on any given day, it could be. Uh, I was going against traffic while I was commuting, so it was kind of dead on an hour and a half. And it was a sixty-mile commute uh, there, but I only thought I figured, oh, we'll find a place. So you know, I'll have to make the commute for a year or so. It won't be that big a deal, right? Three years later, I'm like, I'm gonna kill myself. (laughs) 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 Three hours a day in the car. I wanted to shoot myself, but that's all in the past now.
1: That's great, dude. I'm glad to hear it. Glad to hear it, man. So, um, you know, uh, just to kind of you know start off, I guess, how did you get into training dogs, man?
2: So, I think sort of a classic story uh, bugging the parents as a young boy to get a dog. Wanted a Doberman desperately. Um, uh, mom said no Dobermans. That was at the height of the Doberman scare stuff. And she's ah. like, uh uh-uh, uh, those things that eat people, right? Yeah. And so she said, but you can get a German Shepherd. So I got a German Shepherd puppy from a pet store cool. uh, when I was 12. And the parents said, you have to take care of it and you have to train it. So I got took a free training course at the German Shepherd Dog Club of San Diego, and it sort of just instantly opened up a whole kind of world to me. So I was thirteen probably when I took the class, and then I got involved in junior handling and all that kind of stuff. I met uh, an older couple that owned a kennel and bred German Shepherds, and I got kind of just involved in initially confirmation showing and then AKC obedience, and and then uh, when I was in high school, I worked a summer. Um, my junior year I worked a summer in Pennsylvania for a country vet that was a friend of one of the dog show people Um, and when I was at some dog show in Ohio there was a police in Schutzen or IPO demo that happened and I was immediately like I gotta do that and so I went out none of my dogs were at all suitable so I started (laughs) doing helper work for a global club and it just sort of snowballed you know it was a hobby all through from basically junior high all through high school and then into college with kind of really no intention of turning into a professional career at all. It was just me doing my thing and, uh, it sort of accidentally turned into a career. <laughs> I have yeah. To say. <laughs> right. So, but yeah, classically that. And exactly. so, German temperaments all the way uh, until just out of high school. All
1: right. Discovering so right. other breeds,
2: pit bulls, and bulldogs, and finally settling on Malinois, of course. Sure,
1: sure. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Uh, like
2: all smart people do uh, yeah. <laughs> just kidding people just kidding anyway.
1: I know the real smart people get patterdales is what I understand
2: <laughs> I've heard I ate I, I came really close I did uh, I used to be super into pit bulls and so I did a big loop through the south and visited all the old timey pit bull guys in the south one summer and uh, a bunch of those guys kept pat- hey
1: there they are <laughs> <laughs> a bunch of
2: those guys kept patterdales too yeah and Uh, I was totally enamored. There was a guy that had a bunch of pit bulls and he had a little Patterdale named Chucky and a black Patterdale. And Chucky was scarred from the tip of his nose to the tip of his tail. Oh, I'm sure. Had no fear. He wanted to kill anything with fur. He wanted to kill like he was he would take on a grizzly bear if it happened to be there. And he, every time the, the dog he'd let the dog out of his trailer, he, he'd go, Chucky's
0: back.
2: Chucky <laughs> would tear around trying to attack stuff. It was an awesome little dog, though. I, I was enamored. I looked at Patternales for a while after I came back from that trip. But yeah, I, it, I, I got tired of worrying about whether or not
1: they were going to try to kill everything with fur. So, yeah. I'm yeah. not a, a, a hunter. I'm like, eh, I don't think I need that. Yeah. <laughs> I got one from a, a guy in Tennessee. That's that's Absolutely. where my pair, Patterdale's from, uh, a guy named David Mason. He's been breeding Patterdales for a long time, uh, yes. particularly for for hunting. You know, like yeah. going underground type nonsense. Um, and I recently took her to like a, a barn hunt. Like class. <laughs> and, uh, since I've had her at eight weeks, you know, like I've been sitting in my backyard, like maniacally, you know, <laughs> trying to plan, plan this, like, little murderous beast I have. And yeah, uh, <laughs> you know, she's killed a whole bunch of stuff. I think she was like oh my God. 14, 12, 14 weeks old the first time she saw any type of, like, wild creature. It was a little toad and immediately <laughs> grabbed it and started shaking the hell out of it. And she was so small that when she stopped shaking it, the frog just, like, jumped away like holy crap what the hell was that <laughs> right. but uh it's it's so funny just watching you know the, how quickly they choose oh yeah i can kill that oh I, yeah i could totally the, kill they're, that
2: they're, they're nuts they're it's like it's like pit bulls and fight and dog fighting you know, yes yeah. same kind of gig the game bred dogs like when they turn on they just turn on like they're like i found my purpose in life and it yeah. happens really fast right and that was the, 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 my experience with the pattern nails too I don't need that in my life yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but it is you know watching dogs do what they do is kind of amazing right the, any dog that's that committed to their activity is I kind
1: of get off on that you know, that's agree dogs, do, dogs yeah. doing their
2: thing doesn't matter if it's herding or retrieving or bite sports or hunting dogs or any of that kind of stuff it's all cool right and seeing some creature that is sort of following its passion as it were right like all of us hopefully are right? trying to trying to <laughs> get there life life gets in the way sometimes but it's all right as long it, term
1: as it is known time. to do yeah yeah
0: <laughs> yeah i was up in the air about uh kind of the last podcast we did with craig Kosick, i was real into hunting dogs so i was like oh yeah i'm gonna get me a wire pointer my bird dog i'm gonna get real excited and then uh now i have a dutch mm-hmm. shepherd so uh, ah, nice. Close.
2: I approve of your choice. Not yeah. that the not that the wire heart pointers aren't cool. But
0: well, I, I'm, just,
2: I'm just sort of not into the whole hunting thing. Like I'm into. I love the dog training part of it, and so I'm always fascinated by like, hey, is there another way we can approach training hunting dogs? Because you know, they that community tends to do things very traditionally. but oh, yeah. hasn't done a whole lot of innovation in the last you know twenty or thirty years. But uh, so that kind of is intriguing to me. I'm just you know, I'm at, at heart not a hunter. I'm a, like sure ecologist bird watcher kind of dude and so yeah. like, but I, I'm constantly fascinated with the dogs and I think they make, they make great kind of uh, training challenges for sure so I love them too but Dutch Shepherd, good choice
0: I, I, I'm thinking so I don't regret my choice yet you know she's only latched onto my head a few times oh yeah that's good
2: that's yeah, a but, good sign
0: yeah that's what I that. thought too and it's, you know
2: it's, it's all wrong if they're not doing that, right? I
0: I reached over, I reached across the other day, and she grabbed my bicep, and I was like, "Oh yeah, what a good girl." <laughs> this is terrible.
2: I, I don't know. I'd go that far. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I, I, you know, I wouldn't go on to encouraging it. I might say like, "Hey, how about this instead?" <laughs> it was,
0: well, it was either this bicep or that bicep. <laughs> I'll take the right was, one.
1: Uh, when you said you were uh, traveling down south, looking at some some of those. Pities. were you looking yes. for something in particular or you were you just uh just kind of satisfying your own curiosity
2: so uh i uh got into pit bulls uh kind of relatively early in my protection sport career none of the german shepherds i had were working out the last couple of german shepherds i got either had health problems or um or weren't suitable for the work and i started looking for other breeds and uh i got a pit bull who i really liked um And was starting to look for another pit bull for protection sport work ultimately was where i was going and so i think like a lot of people uh who didn't know any better i sort of assumed well the game bred dogs should be good for that right because they're bred to be tough and they like to use their mouths, so they should be good and so really i started kind of researching game bred dogs and the bloodlines and kind of the history of the breed and so i decided hey i'm going to go see firsthand what those dogs are like and so there's a whole so it's big in the South, and there's a lot of guys that have been doing it for many, many years. So I decided to loop through and play with puppies and see if I could find uh, a puppy that would be suitable for protection sports. And what I found was that it's exactly the opposite. The game bred dogs are like um, uh, behavior specific. They're just bred for dog fighting, and that's it. And so, although you know they'll hang off a flirt pole and stuff like that, lots of them were super soft. They Really afraid about noises, like all that kind of stuff. They were they, they didn't care about any of the kind of stuff that we care about training wise. And I'm yeah. like, oh Of course, you know they had really one dimensional selection, and so although I love the breed still to this day, pitbulls are some of the best like pet dogs out there. They're awesome to lay under couch with and that stuff. <laughs> but it, as a training dog, especially the the gay bred lines, they just they're they're not selected for that. They tend not to handle the pressure well from the handler. They get kind of mopey, you know. They could be a little sensitive to the environments and stuff like that. Um, yeah, I was,
1: I was going to say emotionally sensitive is probably what I would probably... Very.
2: That's a, a great way of putting yeah. it, I think. Yeah, very emotionally sensitive with not the best recovery. Yeah. A little bit. Oh, man. You're mad at me. I don't want to do anything anymore, yeah. right? Yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of shocking because they're so physically tough, like physically insensitive. But sure. Like emotionally yeah. very
1: sensitive. Yeah.
2: So, that. So, so that was the purpose of the trip and it, it was... Turned into more like a, a an anthropological trip, right? Because you get people talking about, and dog fighting is a, a nasty ass sport. But they, people have so many misconceptions about dog fighting and fighting dogs in general, what their temperaments are like. It became sort of a, a mission where I really wanted to see for myself what those dogs were like, and, and a lot of the, the kind of public hype was real, which it isn't, of course. You know, they're dogs, and most of them are. Super sweet. You know, like, they actually, most of the guys down there that, that would fight dogs actually had other dogs to guard their pit bulls so people didn't steal them. It was a big deal that people would come into their dog yards and steal their dogs. They'd have 50 pit bulls out in the forest on it, on chains, and anybody could walk in there and just take any one of
1: them off the chain and take it away. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they were like hopping around happy, like,
2: sure, you want to come with me? Like, no oh, problem. Wow, <laughs> Well, they get a Rottweiler or something. <laughs> have it at the edge so nobody would steal their dogs. Yeah. So, anyway, but yeah, it, it was it was an interesting trip. I met some
1: characters for sure. <laughs> no <laughs> doubt. <laughs> Not dog trainers at all, but dog keepers. Yes. Dog men. Houndsmen or something.
2: Houndsmen. <laughs> yeah. Hound- <laughs> yeah, so, you know, yeah.
0: yeah it's super. It's really interesting because you know, being in the pet dog world, we we do. I mean, I know I can speak for myself and probably Josh on this, but we do get a lot of pity. Type dogs, and that is you know, everyone they're very upset because their dogs are so uh, aggressive. I'm throwing quotes up there if they're there. Yeah, 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 yeah. 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 And uh, yeah. you get these dogs, and what you, you know, being able to communicate with them, you find out, like, wow, these are some incredibly emotionally soft dogs. Oh, right? But yeah, there's talk about a big front, like this big, muscly pity, and it's like, oh, yeah, I can't do that anymore. Okay, well. They right. just slink down and, you know, it would, I had no idea that game dogs would be the same way.
2: Oh, yeah. Maybe even more so because they, uh, the, traditionally, now things change changed in recent years, I think, but traditionally they would not tolerate any human aggression whatsoever. Like, they're basically handling dogs in a dog fight, and sticking their hands in their mouth and holding on to them and all that stuff. And so any dog that would bite a person, they didn't want anything to do with it. So the traditional thing was that they put down dogs that showed any degree of human aggression whatsoever. And so a lot of them are really super mushy. You know, it's like, uh, 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 you see this with unsocialized hunting hounds and a lot of stuff like that. The dogs are good in a specific environment. You take your coon hounds out, they'll run through the forest and do their thing. But if you took them out, tried to walk them down the street in the a, in a suburbs, they yeah. like jump into the bushes every time a car passed, and like they're not, they're, they can be sensitive environmentally, it can be sensitive socially, a lot of that kind of stuff. They're really one-dimensional selection. They care about one thing, hunting, and for the dog fighting people, do they fight well and do they not bite people? I honestly, I have some pet theories about where some of the problems are coming now is when people started wanting pit bulls because they looked tough as guard dogs. And then a lot of the band dog crosses are that now you're getting into a weird thing. Pit bulls were bred for like zero aggression, but a lot of predatory behavior. Sure. Like So they want to chase stuff, they want to grab stuff, and that kind of thing, but no territorial aggression, no defensive aggression, none of that kind of stuff as a breed for hundreds of years. right? The band dogs, are, the Mastiff breeds, were bred to be uh, the state guardians and stuff. So dogs that had lower energies but high defense drives, territoriality and defensiveness, but not a lot of predatory behavior. So then you do these crosses which they did for it, had size to the pit bull and all that kind of stuff that people were trying to breed giant pit bulls, a lot of that is they're you know, crossing some of the lossers into them kind of thing. Yeah. And now you're mixing, and now some of those dogs, you get the predatory kind of insensitive behavior you've had from the pit bulls with some defensive aggression and stuff like that too, or territoriality, and now you've got a bad combination for somebody that's not going to train their dog, right? And so and a lot of people that are obviously attracted to that dog don't train it. They throw it in the backyard, and, or they chain it out, and they want it to bark when people come up, and now they've created a, a, a kind of more problem. I would think that that sort of selection that's happened in recent years has been bad for the breed, for sure. When you never heard of that stuff before, I mean, how they were kind of known as the nanny dog forever, right? The little rascals and that whole thing. Because the pit bull hanging out with sure. kids, mm-hmm. like they were known like that for, forever. So it's, it's a little bit of a drag, right? And they, you know, a lot of this is the case with lots of dogs. They tend to appeal sometimes to the the, the wrong people, in a sense, and people that are not dogs
1: for their own sake, and some idea of what the dog is, so, you know, it's, a little, it's a little frustrating to watch it happen to the breed. Absolutely. I also think uh, <laughs> a big part of it is is just numbers. I mean, I think in the United States, uh, I believe the, the last number I saw was something like a million pit bulls are euthanized every oh, year, and, oh, yeah. you know, I, I don't want to beat, like, the pit bull into the ground uh, for the whole podcast, but, you know, it, it's interesting to hear your perspective, because I think... You know, I think there is a problem with pit bulls, and I don't think it's because they're like some, you know, murderous rampaging monster. But I also think that if if we're going to do something to solve the the issue of pit bulls, personally, I think a, a big part of it is going to come with solving a, an issue of poverty, because, you know, you don't see a whole lot of people out in the suburbs like pumping out a ton of pitties. You see a lot of people inner city. Trying to put food on the table, I can breed my dog with this guy's dog down the street and sell the puppies for a hundred dollars a piece. And now we got all these fucking dogs. So yeah, that's totally true. And I
2: think, and a lot of the dog numbers I've I've read statistically, and I don't know uh, where the the source is or any of that sort of thing, (laughs) that there are poodles by far the most popular breed in the U.S. There are more poodles bred every year than any other breed. Yep. They just don't show up on those lists because they're not registered, right? So when they take the most popular breed list and they publish it in the New York Times every year, it's, you know, it's always Cocker Spaniels and Golden Retrievers and German Shepherds or whatever. But they're taking it off AKC registration numbers, not off yep. actual dogs out there on the street. And it's almost impossible to count them. And when you get out there, and there are a lot of hippos. I mean, you grab any major city's newspaper and look and they're, they're everywhere, so oh, yeah. just just statistically speaking more of them to be biting people because
1: there are so many more of them yes yeah. and people again attracted to the breed because they're supposed to
2: be tough which becomes kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy at some point too
0: you know yeah for sure from coming from josh and i used to work in the inner city of buffalo uh i mean i can't count on how many occasions we'd be walking our pitties down the street and you know king always got higher offers because his head was huge Right like, uh, You know We're getting offers I get you know Is that a trip Is that what Yesterday actually I got Is that a triple red nose I was like what Right
2: <laughs> like, Yeah he's got three nostrils I'm like
0: <laughs> actually He is He's like Well like five grand I was like uh yeah Yeah, yeah. Sure Sure sure, sure. Do Whatever you want
2: Yeah it, like it, it's the same Like with Malinois You deal with the same thing now Like we were lucky For a long time With the Malinois breed And that Nobody paid any attention to them Except working on people There was nobody knew what they were, there was zero attention, you never saw them in shelters. And now, like, all the Malinois rescues are full, they're showing up in shelters, and people are attracted to them for all the same wrong reasons. They see, you know, uh, the movie Max, or they, you know, see some article in the Times on on uh, them catching Osama Bin Laden, or they do like yeah. oh, yeah. dogs, or something like that. And then I get emails all the time, people like, ah, oh, I want, you know, I want to dog that's gonna be good with my kids gonna kill intruders yeah. gotta be
0: big dark like I'm like oh my god yeah zero time involved to get your dog like that you know <laughs> yeah. the thing yeah. that yeah. always killed me about that movie Max was like the, just the actual premise was like alright so you've got this this highly trained dog this highly trained Malinois in the United States Army I'm not sure if it's the army forgive me and then they're just like, yeah, oh, it was your brother. Your do- your brother was the handler, so we're just going to give it to you because you're sad. Like, yeah. <laughs> holy shit, you're going to get that kid's friends killed. Right. Like, that's yeah. just highly irresponsible. Uh, highly unlikely premise. Yeah. <laughs> but I just... Uh, anyway
1: I'm going to uh, take some, some shit for this but I think uh, oh, part of the, part of the I'm not involved part of the issue with some of you know when it comes to like Malinois Rescue and how popular it is I blame dog trainers to a certain ah. extent but I, I blame pet dog trainers who I call the Malinois the dog trainer starter kit because uh, every time somebody's like oh, I'm going to be a dog trainer they go out and they get a Malinois and they want to use it as a demo dog and they bring up their clients and they're showing all this like super flashy obedience which with a malinois that's like even remotely motivated like is probably gonna happen and people start seeing this amazingly trained dog and then they're like oh maybe i should get one of those and not this fucking beagle i'm stuck with (laughs) (laughs) uh and no hate to beagles like i grew up with beagles i love those little suckers dude uh but you know i think there's a lot of people that just go out and get a malinois because it's easy to look as though you're at a high level of training capability because the dog fills in so many gaps for people.
2: Right. It's certainly, and from a motivational sense, that, that, that they're certainly easy that way, most of them, in the in the fact that they're, they're certainly athletic and they learn quickly and they're highly motivated. But people don't realize what uh, kind of temperamental basket cases they can be. They're twitchy, twitchy dogs, right? They're highly reactive. We're talking about dogs that have been bred for, 110 years for biting really so like they get put in a herding group they're not herders they're biters right so the sports that created them in Belgian ring, French ring and they are all basically police dog sports right so we're talking about breeding for a very athletic, biddable controllable dog that likes to bite a lot so aggression is a constant part of it so even if you're breeding social malinois to malinois are social you can get some angry ones in there and then they're reactive and twitchy and they fast and people don't realize if you're not used to socializing that kind of dog properly, the amount of work that goes into making kind of, so you see a a skilled trainer later on, with a a dog that's good in a lot of environments and appears to be sociable and that kind of thing and they recognize the journey that got them there and if you misstep they're super unforgiving, that's the kind of the problems with them, they're nice to train behaviors but they're really unforgiving of your mistakes and so I think a lot of people that are initially attracted to that idea wind up going like, oh, hey, how come my dog's not like that? They don't come out like that. <laughs> <laughs> it's super unfortunate. But, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I spend half my time these days discouraging people from getting that. Yeah. Like I just had an email yesterday from somebody that wanted a service and therapy dog. right? They wanted it to be their service dog, a family pet. They had two toddlers and they wanted it to go to the hospitals for old people and stuff like that with the dogs and therapy to it's completely the wrong dog for that in every conceivable capacity. You know, go get an English lab,
1: big Yeah, that. <laughs> yeah. It's <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> not. Go get a Malinois to do that. A sausage yeah. dog. Yeah, he's gonna just take time. it. Get a waddle yeah, dog. Yeah, um. exactly.
2: So anyway, you're 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 spot on. I think, like the fact that trainers are attracted to the dogs and get out there and showcase them in a lot of areas.
1: <laughs> well, you know, to, to be well, just to be clear, I I uh, the thing I, I was more kind of pointing the finger at is not so much the people like yourself who like bust their ass and make their lifestyle around not just training but exercising, making sure they have well-rounded dogs as best as they can, but people who like. Uh, something in the pet dog industry that, uh, again, I'm not super deep into the sport dog world, so I don't right. hear about it as much. Uh, but you hear a lot about demo dogs in the pet dog world where people <laughs> want to get a dog to like demonstrate their training ability. And I'm of the mindset that like if you really want to demonstrate some training ability – Go out Gotta there, with, yeah, 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 yeah. Right? <laughs> Go out there with a beagle, right? Like, show what me this, do. this like flashy heel with with a dog that couldn't fucking care any less about yeah, yeah. <laughs> just hearing you're a good boy, yeah, you yeah, know? Yeah, <laughs> Like, yeah. uh. But the,
2: the, also the, and I think this is a discussion that should be had in all dog training circles. Is this square pig round hole? The reason people don't do it is you can't do it with a beagle. Like, mm-hmm. yes, there are beagles out there. Exactly, but if there are individual yeah. beagles out there that be that dog. But training is always the kind of combination of genetics and environment, what we're providing for the dog. And I can't you know, turn an apple into an orange, and I can't turn an elephant into, into, into a hyena, right? Yeah. And that's what winds up happening to some degree, is that, that uh, Malinois, you know, are bred for that. And so you have a much better chance of getting a dog that's capable of creating that kind of obedience. And if I get an English Bulldog, the chance I'm going to get an English Bulldog to do that kind of obedience is... It's, it's unicorn rare, right? Yes,
1: yeah. Kind of, yeah, yeah. You know, as close so, to zero as you're going to get. So you're saying so, a chance.
2: So training ability, like, it depends on what. If you're trying to make a well-rounded canine citizen of the world, then yeah, a good dog trainer should be able to do that with a wide variety of dogs and breeds. and That should limit you. There are dogs that will have temperamental issues that cannot be solved with training, right? For sure. Yeah. But that ultimately, I think that uh, that you should be able to make a basically. When you start getting into specialized disciplines and things like that in a certain aesthetic, I think a lot of damage is done to dogs, Mm -hmm. the the techniques applied to dogs that are not suitable for a certain discipline. And a lot of dogs wind up disappointing their owners or their handlers or their trainers because people are trying to make a dog into something they're not. And I'm a huge proponent of finding out what any given dog is good at, where their aptitudes are, so that you can steer them in a direction that's right for them. Exactly, and, and me trying to say hey I want my mouth to be a competition obedience dog, bite sport dog dog diving dog, yeah that's fair to them if I do the same thing with the English bulldog I'm being unfair to the English bulldog and setting everybody up for disappointment <laughs>
1: exactly, that's why you don't see a whole lot of border collies out there hunting rabbits right yeah.
2: exactly right, <laughs> yes, right. And, and, and every time you make pre generalizations which I make them all the time yeah. just to illustrate a point you know, to talk about trends and, and things like that. There are individuals in every breed that are extraordinary dogs for training. Like I was I when I was in New York uh, I, would, I was traveling and giving seminars and I would do inboard dogs on the side a little bit and I had this uh, uh, wealthy aging Broadway actress that had a uh, Karen Carrier okay. right. and, and so she went to Europe for the summer and left the dog with me for training, for like three months of training, I had the dog. And, and you were a little Karen Terrier, like Toto, was her boss. And all she cared about was the dog not pull she, She's like, the dog pulls me down the street, I don't like it. So that's all she cared about. I had the dog for three months. And so I'm like, well, I'm going to do some other stuff. And the dog was awesome. It was <laughs> awesome. Like, I tried to buy the dog for her to be back. I'll give you $3,000 for the dog. The dog was unbelievable. Like, I could do free calls down the sidewalk and do A drop on recall, the dog would scrape the skin off its elbows, hit the sidewalk. The dog was super focused, healing for blocks, it retrieve like a machine, distance position changes. The dog was unbelievable. I love that little dog. And, <laughs> and when she got it back, which is this is none of this is normal at all for a hair terrier. Yep. But when she got it back, she's like, Oh, good, it doesn't pull on the leash. And none of the other <laughs>
0: dog,
2: one single leg She was happy. She paid me like 500. Ah, well, but it must have been like six thousand dollars for, for three months of training. And the dog didn't know anymore, she was thrilled. And I was like, oh my god, this dog is so cool, you have no idea. Yeah. So there are individuals from every breed that'll surprise you, that kind of thing, where you get money. But, but when people start counting on it, that's what really frustrating. And for sure. They, you know, like I always use the, the analogy, like I could play basketball as hard as I wanted and I'll never be Kobe Bryant and he happened. So I can want it. You can shock me. You can give me money. You can do anything. Yeah. None of it's going to make me get there. So it's, it's I think as dog trainers, we have to be sensitive to that too.
1: 100%. Absolutely.
2: Like Defining what your dog's personal limits are and am I
0: asking something of them that they're not capable of
2: giving me? Right? Anyway.
0: You touched on that point in, uh, in St. Louis when you presented at the IACP conference, okay. and that was uh, one of... One of the things that stuck with me was that, you know, th- this is your dog. You, no matter what you want, that's your dog. Yeah. And that could be much more than he or she me is, right? Too. I mean, and then yes. Then as soon as you said leaky dog, I was like, oh, I got, okay, so it's cool if my dog's just constantly <laughs> loud. <laughs> right?
2: Yeah, we, we don't have to love it, but <laughs> yeah. at some point there's this. And this is something I'm constantly fascinated with now. Uh, and. Early in your training career, for most people, and I was certainly no different, you start to figure some stuff out about dog training. You think like, oh, okay, we can solve all these problems. I can fix anything, right?" And then you realize pretty quickly that that's not the case. You know, like you, there are limits to what you can fix, yeah. and and kind of we're defining those limits for any given dog is is a constant puzzle. Like, and, and the longer I do this, the more I'll. I, I don't answer questions like, "Yes, it's this." I go like, "Well, <laughs> right? well like, yeah, that, that, like we, this is the path I would go down." But are we good, are, can I guarantee you we're fixing this? Hell, no! I'm not guaranteeing we're fixing anything. And and you may have to be okay with certain levels of certain types of behaviors because you can get into super inhumane, unproductive stuff with a dog just fighting some very strong genetic
1: propensity. That still doesn't end up fixing the problem. No, no. and and you create a whole bunch of other problems
2: frequently. Your life is miserable. Their life is miserable. So with a little bit of management, you may have to deal with certain kinds of things. And people uh, want so many unrealistic things from dogs, like the general public's idea of what a dog is, what dog training is, how long it should take, what their level of commitment should be, and what uh, dogs are like and capable of being. That people have a misconception about all of that stuff, which is, in my opinion, our job as trainers. It's not just to help people with their dogs; it's to be cheerleaders for the entire process, like mm-hmm. get people excited about learning about training. Like the clients, that's why it, I train dog trainers now more than anything. Is that it's I can reach so many more people by reaching trainers. If you go out, if somebody works with us and it goes out, they all their clients get touched by that information and it fans out and you have a much better chance of kind of changing uh, paradigms in how the general public views dog training uh, if you can get at it that way. And that's why I'm interested in training trainers at this point is the idea that hey, we can affect change and the only way we affect change is changing people's cultural ideas about what dogs and dog training are, right? Going in and fixing somebody's problems. Is good for your business. Like a plumber goes in, and fixes a leak. It's good for your business. You'll always have work, but the problems that we have culturally with dogs don't change until the general public. I think dog training or some dog behavior stuff should be part of every um, starting elementary school.
0: Yeah, that's a good point. I thought of that
2: because more than half the households in the world in the country have dogs. Everybody has to encounter dogs. They're kind of public. They're going to encounter at their friends' houses, even if they don't have one. And for something that's that ubiquitous, you know, everybody goes to get a driver's license and learn about traffic safety and everything else. But we have these animals living with us everywhere all the time, and people don't know shit about them. Right? <laughs> right? They don't know a damn thing about them, and they don't want to know. Like getting people excited enough, even people that get dogs. How I many you, you guys are on the front lines, right? With people that get dogs and then go. Well, I don't really want to know all that stuff. I don't care about all that stuff. Just, you know, make my dog stop barking at the door. Fix my it. On the leash, right? Like, no, that's not how it works. Like, you, would you raise a kid the same way? Like, oh, I don't care about, you know, about child psychology or all that kind of stuff. I just, just want him to grow up to be a Rhodes Scholar. Like, <laughs> can you do that for me? Like, yeah. no. Like, and, and so getting people excited and, and recognizing that dog training is a journey. Like, it's a process. It's fun! Like, so we become like, come on, get excited! This is cool! You wanna know this? I know you wanna know this. Come on! you like a dog. Come on. Yeah.
0: So, basically, we're starting the movement Fuck Earth Science, Yay Dog Training.
2: Yeah! <laughs> so I like earth science, too. Right? Well, I mean...
0: okay. There's, I'm just trying to find something, you know, yeah, trying yeah. to think back to my school days. What, what subject are you Economics like? could go out the window. Oh, yeah. Statistics. <laughs> I mean, shit, it was only half a school year. In high school, anyway, they didn't, couldn't even <laughs> devote a whole, you know, whole year to it. Right. Uh. <clears throat> yeah. So, so. Uh, I don't know about you personally, but when I'm, I find myself going through phases of dog training where I'm like really, really into specific uh, behaviors or specific things, and you know, having gotten this puppy, well, I was always into a, I always wanted a retrieving dog, so of course I got a pit bull from the shelter because his natural retrieve drive is obviously. Whew, real high. Um, <laughs> <laughs> through some uh, thinking and some advice from Josh, he, he was like, "Well, you try and free shape it with a manners minder, and uh, now with this puppy, I'm just I'm manners minder crazy. I'm free shaping everything, and retrieving is currently free shaping or retrieve is like one of my heavy into targets here. Yeah. What are you What are you currently delving into with your dogs? So, I'm revisiting uh,
2: the pressure work in a way that I haven't in a long time, right? So, um, I think for, for people that have been in dog training uh, as long as I have, when I started, there was none of the reward based stuff at all. It was a 100% Keeler method, straight up choke chain obedience and pressure work stuff. And so, that was my kind of segue into the world of dog training and so I got super enamored with the kind of reward-based revolution when that happened. I was in dog training at the time when, you know, um, that's the marine mammal trainers and stuff started to kind of come over in and, influence dog training and i was super excited about that. So I went through what you're going through now, the free shaping phase stuff and I, which I think is awesome. And I still use it a lot in different places. And I think a lot of that stuff is really, really cool. Um, And I found the the early parts of my seminar career were going around convincing traditional trainers to use less pressure, to use more rewards, and to think about trying to make an active learner and getting a dog to be willing to experiment, to be willing to try and fail, maintaining this kind of attitude about learning. Um, And now I find that it's swung so much the other way that um, people now are very good at that, but they don't learn leash handling skills. They think any kind of pressure is inherently evil, that you're gonna cause relationship damage and long-term emotional damage if you're using any kind of pressure. So these days, I'm actually trying to revisit some of the pressure work that I've done and combine some of the reward-based and pressure work in a more productive way, in a more thoughtful, more incremental way um, so that people can actually see a dog work through it without the big dramatic ugliness Pressure work, and so I kind of find, refine a balance place for me where I'm incorporating pressure, um, and letting people know that that's okay without it being kind of their first um, go-to um, line of defense as it right? For, for solution-based kind of and, and so uh, I'm back around that, like layering stuff. So you were talking about retrieving, so all my all of our dogs have um, uh, shaped aspects for the retrieves when we're training. Them shaping the tank and uh, things and then we do some combination kind of pressure and reward on holds to teach dogs not to chew on objects that are in their mouth and then now i'm experimenting with ways of layering uh, like a little bit pressure over uh, completed retrieves or nearly completed retrieves instead of teaching it as a force fetch from the ground up is there ways that we can actually Improve and intensify behaviors without kind of all the traditional aesthetic fallout and stress-related stuff uh, that we saw when we taught retrieves purely with pressure from the ground up. And so, experimenting again and with some of the pressure techniques that I had abandoned uh, to see if they can fit into a, a system that's primarily reward-based on the front end. And how do we bring that in with them without causing kind of long-term damage and that kind of thing? So that's a, a constantly interesting puzzle. So yeah. Uh, yeah, So I do like they're, they're, I have a gained a reputation, and I, I probably have the opposite reputation in certain circles uh, as somebody that says like, oh no, you can't, you don't correct your dog. Oh, he's out there preaching about this reward based stuff. So you can use pressure. Uh, no, 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 no. no, no I just have to talk about when and where and why and which Why do you use it with this dog and not with this dog? And to me, that's the most interesting part of it. Like finding the right balance between those things for the individual dog and handler in front of you, not like okay, we do this system this way we're going to teach your dog to retrieve, we free shape it. or we do a force bench or you do this, then this, then this No, you have to have some flexibility and there's one dog that I wouldn't think about putting any kind of pressure on them in retrieve and another dog that actually is made significantly better and happier uh, because of the clarity for them, right? And one of the things about free shaping that I love is that it's a it's a very pure exercise in timing and observation which dog training is right if you're not paying attention your timing's off you're not going to be a good dog trainer at a certain point and so it's you, you can rely on no other tools you can't help you can there's no way it's, it's your timing and your observation so it's an awesome exercise for that but for somebody that's learning and making some mistakes it can be exceedingly frustrating for the dog and demotivating to some degree so if your timing's off a little bit then the dog's starting to I thought it was this, but now you flicked when I did this, and uh, maybe it's not what I thought it was, and and they're trying something else and not getting a reward, and they're getting frustrated, and they're starting to quit on you, and a lot of other stuff, and so we underestimate, I think, to some degree, the value of clarity and
1: training, right? The idea that um, we use rewards to
2: show the dog what's expected in a sort of stress-free environment, but if I'm using rewards and my timing sucks, then my dog can be under stress even though I'm not applying traditional pressure to them, and so I think it's kind of identifying some
1: of those those um, those pitfalls. Absolutely, uh, and to, to methodology is important. Well, I think also free shaping, uh, at least in a lot of contexts, when I'm I have been using it, I, I think a, a big part of it is the frustration from the dog. You know, when mm-hmm. you, when you're looking for the dog to kind of take that next step or try that new thing, it's oftentimes because something that was previously rewarded is no longer effective at achieving right. the response that they want, so i like, I'll, I'll pick it up, I'll bite the shit out of it, right? So, like, the, the dog gives that next thing. I mean, so inherently... There are dogs, or, there are dogs that, to, to your point, there are dogs that respond really well to that. Yes. Like, there, where
2: frustration is super productive for those dogs. We see yep. it all the time, Bite sport dogs, and like, there are dogs that have what we would call the appropriate response to frustration. You have other dogs that don't have that response to frustration.
1: They get frustrated and they go, like, screw this, God, Yeah, respond. this game sucks, I'm leaving.
2: I'm not doing anything else. Yeah. So they don't get aggravated by it. They're like, screw you, Right? And so identifying that, like, so the dogs have responded well, with that kind
1: of frustration is super, it's awesome. It's great. But I think there's stress involved with it either way. Uh of and course. And I think, you know, that's something that I, I don't necessarily know a ton of people are talking about as far as the stress that comes from sometimes just using something like free shaping in a sense where I'm, I'm not going to give you a whole lot of input here I'm just gonna let you kind of struggle and, and flounder a little bit um, you know ideally if we're doing our job well I'm not letting you fail repetitiously but yes. uh, you know I'm, I'm gonna let you kind of work through some mm-hmm. of these problems and Ultimately, uh, I, th- I think you're dead on. I mean, there's some dogs who, who shine with that, and there's other dogs who, like, take their ball and go home type of shit, you know? <laughs> they just, <laughs> they don't want to play anymore.
2: Can't figure it out, sorry. Yeah. Yeah. And, and with our, our traditional working dogs, and a lot of the people that are huge proponents so of pure free-shaping, people that don't want to use any other techniques, right? Um, uh, then you see them with a certain kind of dog free shaping. Yeah. I
1: mean,
2: the same thing that we're talking about, I think why we're getting them out a, see a whole bunch of border collies. You like a whole bunch of these types of dogs that are um, really motivated and self motivating in a sense, like that they get a lot of satisfaction from activities themselves. There. Uh, it's not so much the reward as the activity of interaction and things, and, mm-hmm. and, and herders are like that, and that with a positive response and, uh, response to stress, right? To, to frustration, mm-hmm. as it were. Uh, and so those dogs do really well in those kinds of systems quickly, and they become very active. Of other dogs that you have to make sure they're successful much faster. So I would say, for us, ninety percent of the time we're not purely free shaping. We're doing what I call assisted shaping. Yeah. And so we're we're helping the dog make choices in the direction we want without totally helping. So if I'm shaping a take for retrieve, I don't just sit sit there and wait for my dog or whatever, to want to something. I think it am going move it so the dog wants to look at it. Yes. Yeah. That and explore it. it. Like, races, but we're helping them make choices in the direction that we want. And once we get them to start offering, then we'll sit and wait for them to offer own. But that way we take the dogs that are a little less motivated with maybe a less appropriate response to frustration and we uh, keep them in the game and they get success and success breeds effort after that. So then when they fail a few times they don't just give up, they're trying. Mm -hmm.
1: I like that term, assisted shaping, because I've always kind of felt, uh, I very rarely do true free shaping, of which right. I'm not helping the dog whatsoever, so I, I definitely like that term a little bit more. Uh, it, it seems more accurate to what I think I, uh, yeah, we're yeah, doing. That's what
2: I like. I, I, I search around, like, how do we describe this? Because you know? it's not fully helping dogs, like when we're luring them, or physically manipulating them to the leash, but we're definitely setting up circumstances where they're going to go in the right direction Yeah. This is. And that works with a much broader range of dogs, right? And then the only other thing about free-shaping, which I like uh, people that take it too far and do too much of it, you you get big uh, impulse control problems right? yeah dogs, right? So because if, if people are just free-shaping the dogs hit the spot where if they don't get a reinforcement in a certain period of time then they're going to try something else they exactly. very early on if you don't get a reward, you're not right so do something else, and those dogs then Try persistent certain behaviors for extended periods of time, They start uh, throwing stuff out at you. And okay, that didn't work. I didn't get a reward right away, so maybe I should try this and try this. And so a lot of those dogs, which is great for kind of trick training or that kind of thing, but it's not so good to sustain behaviors. So you have to just be careful about not staying on that too long after a certain point. With retrieving, with retrieving, it's different in that most dogs, no matter how you got the initial retrieve, other than a dog that has a C room natural retrieve drive or zero prey drive or zero play drive. Uh, for most of our dogs, once we've created the behavior, there are self-reinforcing aspects to retrieving behavior. And So no matter how you got it, you watch a lot of like field trial type labradors and stuff like that that have been trained to retrieve with a forced fetch. And those dogs look great. They're, they look like they're having a blast. Because they are, right? You took a dog with a very high genetic retrieve drive and you taught the retrieve through pressure. But that dog get so much satisfaction from the act of retrieving that the stress of the pressure is bled away and the dogs are really enjoying themselves even though they learned that behavior under force because of the self-reinforcing aspects of of retrieving. And so retrieving is one of those things that if you free-shape that behavior, then you don't have to worry so much about the dog's impulse control problems or the dog's offering other behaviors because the act of retrieving becomes reinforcing in and of itself. But for things like downstays, position changes in the
1: distance.
2: Yeah. Like those kinds of things where dogs go like, well I think your reward is you're gonna feature healing. and the dogs start to go, Maybe I should do something else, maybe I should bark at you, maybe I should spin,
1: maybe yeah. I should have been, <laughs> whatever else. <laughs>
2: and and a lot of the, the purity. <laughs> you'll actually have
1: a, a, a well-trained dog in a variety of environments. Yeah. Speaking of well-trained dog in a variety of environments, this is something that uh, I've noticed over the years. Uh, again, I've gone to a bunch of you know, working sport dog type seminars because I think what you guys do with some of these sports is kind of take things that I try and do with my pet dog clients but because it's kind of graded or scored in a certain sport, you've been able to kind of create this little microcosm where you're just looking at this one very specific behavior and come up with some really interesting ways to, to train that stuff. Uh, but one of the things I've kind of noticed, and uh, you know, I think this, this kind of plays a little bit back to what we were talking about the Malinois earlier, is the amount of people that have a, a Malinois or a Dutch Shepherd as a sport dog that almost... Can't be anywhere near another dog or a human being. Oh, yeah. Yeah, Uh, It it really kind of blows my mind that there's so much time and effort put into creating this aesthetic of highly trained, passionate behavior in the context of a sport, but that dog comes out of its kennel like a goddamn shark and is just looking. Mm for somebody yeah. to jack.
2: It could be a problem. Well, it's a, it's a problem if you want something else, right? So yeah. There are people in sport the in sport world, certainly, that um, are not at all concerned with their dog's uh, pet behavior, right? So for them, it's a tool to compete in a sport. The dog can live in a kennel, come out to train. And it's certainly uh, much more complicated to have a dog perform at high levels in sport or competition and be a well-rounded pet at the same time, right? There's a lot more considerations you have to have. So if I want to encourage a dog to, to be uh, so uh, kind of intense about certain activities, how do I teach them without inhibiting their desire to do that? How do I teach them to have manners around the house where it's appropriate to be in that level, that state of arousal, where it's inappropriate to be in that state of arousal, right? Um, I, the socialization issues of making sure that the dogs are around other dogs in an appropriate So that's just a ton more work for a lot of people. Sure. High-level competition. Sport work is its own lot of work, right? So there's a lot that goes into it. And so a lot of people just don't want to invest the time and energy. And, it, and you run into some more complicated problems in terms of socialization. And because you're encouraging the dog in a certain environment to be very assertive, and very pushy, and very demanding, that can carry over into other environments. So and just squash it in the other environments either because then it can lean back over to my sport training. So to me that's one of the most interesting aspects of dog training, right? Is how do I, how do I jive those two worlds? How do I make those two worlds come together? How do I have my dog go 110%, 100 percent in a certain spot? I hate that phrase, I don't know I said. It. I, I always say it when people say he gave 110%, like it drives me nuts. Like you can't give more than 100 so. <laughs> <laughs> percent Like and they write you said. It. Right. But, like, I want my dog to go uh, pause out in one spot, 100%, full commitment, and then be under my control as well, listen to me. That means they have to be able to fully focus on a task at a given moment and then transfer their energy back to listening to me and paying attention to me. I want them to be able to chill out in the house. I want them to be good around the other dogs that are petting their you lives. Uh, I want them to be um, at least neutral to people. I should be able to walk into the farmer's market it shouldn't be trying to lunch everybody and that kind of thing Um, and to me that's a really interesting puzzle because the way you get there is different with every single dog and as a trainer that's what keeps the whole process interesting like if you had a recipe for making that kind of dog you'd be rich, I'd be bored to death to just do this this, and this in this order and you get this but of course it's like that every time it's different, the last dog needs socialization this one needs less socialization this one needs me to be a little firmer here and this one needs me to be more permissive at this stage of the and so you're constantly having to pay attention to the dog and watch where you're in balance and out of balance and that is to me totally fascinating and fun but it isn't for everybody and there are lots of people that just really want their sport dog to be good and that's a harder thing to achieve and you get other people where their energies will be more geared towards being Around with that other stuff, but that's not their primary their primary focus. Their dogs are companion and their pet. And the sport stuff, although they would love full dog to be able to do it is secondary and take some compromises in that direction. And so I think I think it's just hard work is why a lot of people are going to do it. And with certain dogs, um, you can't do it. Meaning there's a dog of a temperament type or motivation level that requires that one-dimensional thing in order to get the most of them motivationally, right? I, that's one of the reasons that I like Mal Is in general, I can ask them to do a lot of things and they still have gas left in the tank to perform the behaviors that I would, would like them to perform. But you get other types of dogs and unless you kennel them, or isolate them some, if you give them too much to do, then they do everything kind of half-assedly. It's not like they're not going to be trained. It's not like they're going to do it, but they will do it at the same level of energy and commitment. But it's some degree of Specialist out of them is necessary to get a certain type of performance from a given dog, right? Anyway, but you're right. I think for me, the sport work stuff is just um, again the same kind of thing we we're talking about with the free shaping. It's attention to detail stuff, right? And so, when training people to be trainers, there's a lot of in the pet dog world. Which you're aware, of, well, that's good enough, right?
0: A
1: yeah. Lot of,
2: okay, that, it's good enough that people. Don't care about that stuff, I don't have to pay that much attention, and that kind of thing. And it's very difficult to start out kind of eh, not paying close attention, not being needle oriented, and then deciding to tighten things up. It doesn't cut long. But I can be very precise and very strict in my beginning work and then decide, okay, I can let this go And you can go that direction, but it's really difficult to go the other direction. And so, educating people. Just look at your dog. The fact that your dog's sad. How did your dog sit? How did it actually move its body? I mean, did it rock back? Did it come forward? Is it short? shoulders directly over its feet? Its legs tucked up under him. Is it rocked over one hip? How did it move its body? In the head? And not that it matters for your given dog which way they do it, but it matters for you as a trainer if you pay attention to that kind of thing. If you can actually see that kind of thing, and when you say to somebody, "How does your dog sit?" I mean, how does your dog sit? My dog puts his butt on the ground. That we sense like "How do they move their body?" And that attention to detail, I think, is good for every trainer, mm-hmm. whether or not you choose to train every dog with that level of detail and to teach them very precise behaviors and put hours and hours and hours into some very refined behavior. You don't have to, but it cultivates a way of looking at things, a way of kind of paying attention to details, timing, observation, breaking things down into small pieces when you're teaching, which is super useful. People like yeah make the distinction all the time between in dog training what I call lumpers and splitters, right? <laughs> and so <laughs> the lumpers are the people that try to get more complex behavior changes, just drag the dog through it, you know, figures out what it basically is, right? And lumper, the dog can be doing one part of the behavior right and one part wrong. At the same time, so if I reinforce the right part, I reinforce the wrong part, if I punish the wrong part, I punish the right part. And then the people... splitters They break things down into small pieces. The pieces that assemble them again in a finished kind of hole, which tends to take more time. And so that's less prevalent in pet dog training circles. But it shouldn't be. People should have that attitude. And then, yeah, if I can shortcut and a couple things together with really a dog, great, you can. But if you haven't cultivated that way of looking at problems, it's very difficult for you, right? And so the sport work for me not only is a challenge as a trainer and interesting, but it makes you a better more trainer, And uh, that's why I would like everybody, to eat pet dog trainers, everybody, to at least dip your toe in that water.
0: And yeah. then also,
2: yeah. my experience with pet dog trainers, and you guys are probably beginning to think of it as well, is you have a, you, you, there's a very high rate of burnout, right? Yeah. If you're dealing with people that are not passionate about this necessarily, you know, that are not going to necessarily listen to your advice. you know, you've done, you've the protocol, the dog's making progress, everything's going great you see them a month later, or two months later, and they sort of let them all go, and that can be super depressing, but if you care about something, you put that amount of time into it, and so kind of being around other trainers and um, keeping your foot in some of those worlds helps keep a lot of them motivated, so a lot of the trainers that come to the school are like, it's like a bad recharging for them, okay, now I can go out and hang out with other trainers, people that actually care about doing this, that are going to put in the work, and then get myself all pumped up again so I can go back and do you know, something I, I agree wholeheartedly. That's going whole to disappoint me. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
0: I was just I was just thinking about that because uh, yesterday during one of my lessons, I was prefacing the the following portion about me being really picky with them. I find sometimes people are a little turned off with how picky I am regarding, let's say, their leash work or something like that, right? And I'm like, no, like, I, trust me on this. You know, if you're half as picky with your dog as I am with you, you're going to have a wonderful dog by the end of this. But yep, it's just that's a, it's a And thing. it's the same
2: thing. You can you overshoot and come in under and you're still functional. Exactly. And somebody exactly. right off the bat is looking for compromises from day one.
0: I'm not Yeah, you, know, you head into unproductive territory really, really quickly. Oh wait, not I'm interested territory. in commitment, right? And that's yeah. right. I find myself being extremely picky to the point where I I catch myself being so picky and I'm like, man. I'm surprised these people are still here. I'm literally <laughs> nitpicking their fingers. Like, no, don't do that. Oh, wait, like, let's do it differently. All right?
2: It's a litmus test. Ultimately. Yeah. You, you can handle this. <laughs>
0: yeah. If you can handle me for the first 10 minutes of our lesson, we're going to be great. <laughs> if not, you're free to go. Nice. Yeah. You, came to, uh,
1: you came to IACP a couple times and spoke. And one of the things, um, you know, I forgot to ask you last time I saw you there. But uh, to be perfectly honest, uh, you ruffled a few feathers at your first visit. And
0: uh, <laughs> in a way, Sorry.
1: yeah, yeah, in a way that I thought was, was actually uh, quite refreshing. And again, um, like I, I am a pet dog trainer, but a lot of the things that I do as a trainer, I have kind of stolen from people like yourself, where I find it incredibly valuable for the average person to learn how to teach a, a precision behavior. Yes. And, 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 and I don't really give a shit what it is, but if if they can take the time, I think it does wonders for deepening the relationship with their dog and just understanding what it's going to take to kind of change some of those other behaviors. Uh, but, and, I, and I'm probably going to butcher, butcher this a little bit, but I, I believe if I remember correctly, one of the things that some folks got upset about, and I went out to coffee, uh, Right after you spoke, and in. and they were like fired up about it. Was uh, was uh, you said <laughs> something to the effect that um, pet dog trainers shouldn't be telling people that they're gonna like teach their dog a, a like really high quality trained recall in like three to four weeks. Yeah, and you know there was there was three particular trainers that uh, you know. We're we're kind of upset about it. Mm -hmm. And I said, okay, but you have to then understand, in my opinion, probably where this guy is coming from. Is he's not training Betty Lou's dog up the fucking street here. (laughs) He's talking about a dog trained to compete on the world stage around high-level distractions on a naked dog. We're not talking a dog that comes to you when you're stimming it every recall. To me, that's not trained. Right. That's that's not a trained behavior. And yeah, and I think you're not you're not far off. I think the important thing is the definition of what we're
2: talking about, uh, a fully trained recall, and yeah. the definition is obviously different than, than somebody else's but the functional recall, and man, you can quickly get functional recalls on a lot of dogs, like your dog, in, in this environment with this level of distraction and this type of time but my definition of a recall is what and you said it's not necessarily even competition stuff but my dog comes when I call them every single time whether they're wearing any equipment or not and that means if they're chasing a rabbit and they have their mouth open and they're about to bite it then I call them they turn away and come back that you do not achieve in three weeks and I care about how the dog recalls exactly it's important to me it's not just that a dog does something but their attitude about doing it right and I think more. I think more people should care about this to me it's, it's super important right and so my dog does that recall and doesn't do it reluctantly or looking like you beat it it does it with passion and energy that, say, man, another being passionate and so when i call that dog i want it very responsive but i want it coming back with speed and energy i'm going to ears up and tail up when it gets to me like hey i'm here what do we got right and so if you want that aesthetic part of it the fact that my dog is um, responsive in a wide variety of environments and wide variety of arousal levels and looks like they're enjoying what they're doing because hopefully they are enjoying what they're doing then that takes a long time and my experience is that good dog training covers that I meaning your dog will do it in a wide variety of environments with energy like it looks as if they're enjoying their work, they're reliable and those sorts of things, that takes a long time and good dog training takes a long time and the more skilled trainers take more time with things instead of less. Right? There's this idea if you're good, then you can do it faster. Now guess what? Go see the good people and guess what they do with their own dogs? They take more time. They pay more attention to the foundation pieces. They stay at those beginning stages longer so that when the pressure comes in, the dogs already have a well established behavior. They have a passion for the activity. They handle the pressure better, they resolve it more quickly, I have to use it less frequently and I don't get stuck relying on the tools where my dog won't respond if he doesn't have any call.
1: The reason I wanted to clarify is uh, you know, that, that was kind of where my head was at when, when I heard you talking about it. And, uh, you know, I I personally didn't take any offense. I was like, okay, yeah, that, that, made, that makes sense, you know. Uh, but, you know, to, to hear you say it, um, yeah, no, it, it definitely... No, and, no, no, no. and we're and in the I, right I, it mindset.
2: There was also partially uh, uh, a dig because uh, I I, I can disguise it nicer terms, but it's a dig at people out there that are offering two and three week inboard programs where your dog's going to be off leash obedience training Yeah, this is how it's advertised, right? You can come down and placement work and, and walk collection stuff at a time. If you're doing that, I'm not saying it's not possible. That dog is going through well, a, a lot of necessary stress. Mm-hmm. There's no step-by-step teaching what's appropriate. Showing the dog how to do it and then finishing it up. You can't. It's taught 10% pressure. And it's the dog's learning under pressure, and to me, that's that's a problem. Hey, solve the problem. I mean, shoot me
0: down. Like, sure. <laughs> I remember shit
2: better. Part it, right? So you have they have to maintain it, and so like, uh, I, I, to me, we're fighting against that mentality. And there's a part of it's based in economics for professional trainers, you know, to be competitive with the other trainers out there. The guy down the street says he can do it in three weeks, and you know, and so I have to offer something similar uh, instead of going out there and trying to ch- change people's minds about training and everything. That it feeds into it, one of the most popular things, they're problem solving things. We have a dog with a problem, and the pro comes in and fixes it in two sessions. That's not the way, it's, and they look for drama. You know, they want stuff that looks really good on camera, that's gonna be really interesting to watch, dramatic change, dramatic responses, like danger the dog's trying up bite you know, whatever it's gonna be, they're looking for drama. And good dog training is not dramatic nothing dramatic happens if you do a good job. It happens slowly and incrementally and just small increases down the road and one day you wake up and you've got a lightly trained dog. Yeah. That's what it's doing. But there was, if you did it right, there's very likely it's for TV. And so, and all those things feed. trying to do, right, which is to get you know, people to commit to training as a process and to like it. Like, and that means the pet dog people, too. Like, even if you don't want to train your dog to do focused healing, it's fine. But you, like you said, train it to do something precisely. Find something that it really, really likes to do. And do it with it. Like Your relationship will improve. The dog will have a fuller life. All that kind of stuff. So getting people motivated. You know. anyway.
1: For sure. Interesting. <laughs> I, d- I do a lot of, like, training tricks And, you know, yeah. most of us Don't really give a damn Like how precise necessarily the trick is But Yeah, you know, yeah right. uh, <laughs> But I think there's a lot to be gained From the average person uh, who, oh, yeah. There's a lot of dog trainers I know That work in the pet industry That just kind of like, mm-hmm, yeah, yeah that's, that's really nice and cool But the dog needs to, like, do this other thing That's really a serious problem And I don't that's disagree true. with that But it's very, very rare that you'll see a dog who can differentiate between spin and twist, roll over in one direction and the other direction, sit down, stand. It takes takes
2: some little work. It takes some some relationship. It takes.
1: And is still a dickhead on the leash. Like (laughs) (laughs) that that usually doesn't happen. (laughs) You're
2: not. You're not solving that. Well, that's the whole thing. Dude, like people look at it holistically uh, these days, uh, I, and I'm thinking of adding a class at the school just because I get so much. People say, "Well, you don't have anything that's behavior modification. Like you don't have a behavior." And because people want a behavior mod class, where like yeah. okay you see this, you this is how you fix that behavior. And I'm like, every class is a behavior modification. <laughs> <laughs> every single one of them. Like it's always all of that stuff. Every relationship is a global relationship between. It's not one thing. Yeah. Like tricks is piece of a puzzle. It develops exactly. It develops communication skills. It develops uh, a, a, a passion for learning in a dog and things like that. So that's not going to solve your leash reactivity problem, but it's one piece of the puzzle. The way that you can communicate with the dog and the dog can turn to you for information, can turn to you for reinforcement, and those things, and then. There's management and then there's leash skills and pressure work and there's a whole series of tools that we put in place and all together address the behavior. It's so rare that a behavior modification program comes in and says, oh, let's attack the behavior right at the point of attack. Yes. You don't jump. What's the leash? Correct. That. Like, that's all you have to do. Don't worry about anything else. Just correct that. That is a, a, an inappropriate way of dealing with those things. It's a holistic thing. Exactly. So, those pieces all have to come together. So just because you did that doesn't mean that's solved. But if that, in combination with several other things, will help you solve that problem.
1: I always like to say that uh, you know th- there's so many people that that contact you as a dog trainer like oh well, well my dog's only issue only yeah. thing he does is, you know, he he jumps on people at the door. It's like, well, I, I yeah. doubt that's the only thing. However, I have <laughs> <almost
2: positive. laughs> yeah. you have extremely low expectations,
1: but you're not. Yeah. But, uh, <laughs> you know, there's so many people who just want to fix that problem. You're talking about behavior modification. The way I try and explain it to people is what you're asking me is, what is the one single thing I can do to get, like, movie star six-pack abs? That's not a real <laughs> thing. <laughs> there isn't one single no, thing. Like That's good. Right? Right. Like, it, like, you have to do a whole bunch of stuff here. A whole bunch of things. Yeah, so uh, it, it's definitely... Which we're
2: obviously not doing.
1: No, nah, no, nah, you and me both, <laughs> brother. Yeah, nah, nah, no. Nah. I drink too many beers I'm for that. i the
2: finding the 12-ounce curls are not helping. Yes.
1: Not helping. <laughs> Absolutely, man. Uh, so one of the things we like to ask all of our guests... Uh, being this is philosophers and madmen right uh, <laughs> which one am I <laughs> which one are you
2: I, I think I think you, you have to be both right so they have to go hand in hand right yeah do I would I, a little bit of madman's good for everybody like yeah, as an outsider's way of looking at the world it's yeah important. And, and then uh, if you're not asking yourself all the big important questions like why you're here why we're doing what we're doing and all those sorts of things that you're not
0: going far either, so... I, I think a little bit of both. <laughs> I'm gonna get totally yelled at if I don't ask this question, because I was right. prompted by so many times by a, a co-worker. Um, when you're... She's looking to get a walk puppy soon. Uh-huh. She says, ask him how he would pick out a puppy. And I said, well, just ask uh-huh. him yourself. <laughs> and she said, I can't do that. Uh, so... You can totally
2: ask me, but I can all the answers...
0: <laughs> for sure. And now I'm going to get yelled at for calling her out on this, too, which okay. is totally okay. So, by all means. So, um, so,
2: pick the parents very well. So, I don't pay very much attention at all to the um, to puppy tests, per se. So, when you're taking a puppy home, when you're supposed to be taking a puppy home at eight weeks old, um, then a lot of things traditionally you would do to select the puppy... Uh, they don't mean squat you're not going to be able to see the things that are important and i've seen many many eight-week-old puppies that look horrible that turned into be rock stars and have seen some great that didn't turn out to be so great and so i don't think a lot on picking the individual puppy but i do a lot of research ahead of time so you want to know the parents that are and as much about the parents siblings as possible right so um, if you have some understanding of Bloodlines are producing the kinds of dogs that you like that can be good to help steer you in the right direction to begin with. But are the parents doing the things you want to do with your dog? Are the people that are training them living and working with their dogs in a way that appeals to you? Like, does their dog just live in a kennel and come out to work? Or are they doing stuff that, or training and methodologies that you might, that might suit what you want to do with your dog? Um, and, and then go in and you're cute, I'll take you. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, if, if you have a choice, I wouldn't pick the one that's hiding under the bed, but I, I can give you many stories about the one hiding under the bed turned out to be a green dog. So um, sure. pick generally an outgoing puppy that likes to play, and then do your research ahead of time is the biggest part.
0: So You're picking litter, not the individual dog. Okay. Cool. So any little brown thing with a black mask will do? Uh,
2: Within the litter, if you did the other part right. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> so so, if, so you, if you think that one's cuter than the other one, sure. And a huge part of success with puppies, if, if you've picked puppies that have the right genetics to begin with, is you committing to the puppy. Sure. So what winds up happening for a lot of people is if there's something about a puppy that appeals to you, it makes it a little bit easier to commit to the puppy. Like A good trainer should be able to deal with certain the dog not being exactly what you want job, right, obviously, For sure. but it certainly makes it easier if the dog's personality suits your personality too, because like, if you're somebody that doesn't like a really independent dog, then don't choose the independent puppy, even though that dog may turn into a fantastic dog and you may be able to turn that around, it's easier to get behind the puppy, what you do in the first four to six months with that puppy is the big deal, it's like what happens when you bring it home, so you have to be able to fully commit to the puppy and so if somebody sits sit on a dog from the beginning, like I don't know I think they got naked litter which is the nonsense stuff right then people sit back and kind of wait for the puppy to prove itself to them or you know they're kind of partially judging it all the time sure. if you bring a puppy home you want to just really get behind the puppy like, you know, this is the best best this is the next world champion you know, treat it like that you give it everything it needs and then it, you know, if it turns out not to be so it's not, to, it's not so right but anything that allows you to kind of get behind the dog is useful so when I'm telling people Puppies. If you have one that appeals to you on some gut level, you can go with it. Like all, the, I spent a period of time when I was traveling in Europe and visiting breeders in France and Belgium and stuff like that, and I was collecting mountain pedigrees and talking to these guys about old dogs and what their real pedigrees were. Like, kind of and I, for a period, asked all of them, like, how do you pick your puppies? And these guys would go. A <laughs> <of those laughs> down, and like they're picking a puppy up on the other, like this one, right? And they were only half joking, truthfully. Like, if you did the research right, you go to the right litter, then individual choices, roll the dice at that point, they all have an equal chance of turning out. Right? And the personality traits you'll see when they're a little, but the stuff that matters for a working dog, you won't see.
0: Excellent. Much appreciated.
2: No problem. Hopefully this doesn't stop bugging them.
0: Whoever she is, can, she can ask me in the future. She's going to get so mad now. Uh, so,
1: before we let you go, get back to, uh, you know, running running your school. Um, any chance that your name for your school was uh, influenced by Zoolander?
2: <laughs> <laughs> no, no although, although I do love that. Sorry. Because <laughs> <What's
1: it>? uh, <laughs> my girlfriend Next. used to tell me all the time that I should open a school, the Josh Moran school for dog trainers who can't train good and want to learn <laughs> to do other stuff good too. I totally <laughs> forgot about that one. I love that. That's so awesome. I actually named
2: with RC litter, the puppy that uh that I wanted to keep from that litter, and it wound up going to a friend of mine in Montana. His name, while I had it, was Stu Awesome. Eh, awesome. The no, uh, actually, it's it's uh, when I was opening and trying to decide, uh, Ed Frawley actually said, "Just use your name. Like you spent all this time traveling and giving seminars, people know what your name is. Like don't come up with you know some name that you're going to have to create name recognition over. So, uh, it was the, the, really that simple. <laughs> yeah, exactly. exactly. <laughs> and I paid zero. Uh, tra- traditionally, throughout my career, I've paid very little attention business aspects of training, I'm one of those people that believe that um, if you put your head down and you do good work and you show up when you're supposed to show up and you pay attention to improving your skills, you'll always have work. And in my opinion, too many people concerned with the marketing and business aspects of it right out of the gate. You know, there's somebody has been training dogs for a year and a half and they got the band wrapped and the Facebook page and their Instagram and the shit out of it and all this stuff. It's like... A little less energy in the air and a little more on your training will go a Agreed. Uh, but uh, the further you get into this I had had some people give me good advice t- uh, in terms of business stuff about this <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's a good
1: businessman. <laughs> For all he's hilarious man. I uh I got dude. He's I, a good
2: dude. Like I, he is a he's a crazy guy but he is a really good
1: dude. I I agree man. I uh you know Saw him, you know, in in like the the blue screen of of Froley uh, at the beginning of so many DVDs, uh, you know. And, and when I, and, you
2: know, and he and he can, on the internet especially can have sort of an abrasive personality on the internet. Yeah. So when I first when I first met him, I was no way prepared for like how nice and open minded and generous a, a guy he is. He really really is. a, a, a good and one of the few people that have been around as long as he has that I've met that um, can fully admit when he was wrong and, and open his mind up to, to new approaches. He's kind of amazing that way. Yeah. Usually you hit people that have been around that long and they're pretty set in their ways and they have a hard time saying, like, ah, I think I was wrong there. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And I really admire that about him. He's been he's incredibly generous to me and he's a totally different guy in person to me.
1: I, I couldn't agree more, man. I could. Uh, when I first went out to, to record a, you know, a course for the online university, Learberg does. Like, to be honest, that, that was like a huge opportunity for me. It's like really fucking nerve wracking. You're going out there, like, <laughs> you walk into that training room that I've seen in so many different videos, and like, yep. it was just Jeff, Forrest, Ed, and Cindy. Like, okay, now tell us about dog training. I was like, Could've oh fuck but after that you know ed just stood up at one point and he goes okay well when you guys are done like an hour yeah like an hour come over to the house we'll have some scotch and just walked (laughs) out i was like i think we're gonna get along just fine man he's a good good guy yeah good dude good dude for sure uh anything um you want to end today's conversation on Pieces of info you want to shoot out there to, to new trainers or just want to tell people how to get a hold of you? Maybe not your email or nothing, but as far as where, yeah. they, can, where they can look yeah. you up.
2: Everyone, everyone can reach us through the school websites, usually the best spot. So just michaelalaschool.com and uh, email what's on there. I'll get that. We have an office number here. You can get it I'll hold me down. Anybody needs a California, any dog trainers out there or want to be dog trainers, need a California vacation, come visit us in Wine Country. If it's good. It's a hey, nice cool. spot to
1: hang out. Excellent. Hey, <laughs> cool. mm. Appreciate it, guys. Ah, dude, Thank you. Thanks for coming on. It was a blast, and uh, hopefully we'll get you on here again. Yeah, and you guys uh, need to make it out this way, too. Twist my arm, why don't you? Yeah,
2: come on <laughs> yeah. some wine. There's fishing out here, for sure. It's
1: all yes, fun. it's on. It's on. <laughs> wine, fishing, and dogs, All yeah, I'm into it. Perfect, right? I'm all into right, guys, it. Thanks a ton. Appreciate Thank it. Thank you. Thanks buddy. a lot, Michael. Have a good one, dude. You too.